So again, I want to uh, welcome everyone to our Wednesday morning gathering at Spirit Rock and really appreciate uh, we have people from all over the U.S., from Canada, from France, from uh, New Zealand. And I also want to uh, welcome right now uh, my colleague uh, Eve Decker. Eve, De Eve, if you can just say hello, Eve will be as a Dharma teacher and also a, a wonderful musician. If you can say hello just for a moment, that'd be great. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here with you. And so I wanted, wanted to start, uh, you know, acknowledging that uh, for people in the U.S. at least, this is, uh, this is a lot. We're the day after the election. And I wanted to invite people just to put into the chat um, maybe in two or three or four words, how you're doing. And wanted uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you if you can to, to read these if they come through, just to get uh, a sense of how things are, just uh, in a few words. Worried, anxious, exhausted, frazzled, restless, exhausted, optimistic, frightened, nervous, aching heart, anxious, scared, waiting, uh, compassion from uh, someone outside of America, um, sad, concerned, worry later, breath now, optimistic, stressed, uh, Canada bound, one person <laughs> offered. Uh, grateful for Dharma and sage support. Yeah, maybe a few more. Any, any further ones, Brian? Uh, one more just came in, uh, resigned. Resigned, okay. Brian, would you be willing to uh, save the chats when at the end of the session and uh, send them to me? I, I would appreciate that. Sure. Uh, one other just came in, finding footing and prayer, exhausted, unease, hopeful, and realizing that the future is ours. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I was particularly touched by uh, worry later, breath now. I like that. When you can say worry later, worry isn't the same as it usually is, right? <laughs> I will plan to worry later, but not now. Uh, interesting. So, um, yeah, I was, I was thinking of the situation here today, and I, I want to generally reflect some on uh, how to use our practice to uh, guide us in this time. You know, and it, as if uh, there wasn't a lot happening before yesterday in the U.S. or, you know, also, you know, things happening. I know uh, some very difficult things happening in France uh, uh, recently. Um, so it was difficult. And I, I thought of a, a line from, uh, from the Buddha from about 2,600 years ago. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation 
is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Buddha, who can disentangle this tangle? It was a question, actually it was a question asked to the Buddha. And he sometimes saw uh, the teaching as disentangling the tangle. And I like that in the question, it was named that there's both an inner tangle and an outer tangle. And I think we can see that from the sharing of what's going on for each of us, that there is a kind of, uh, there's an inner tangle, there are inner challenges uh, linked with the outer challenges. And how do we process what's happening? How do we respond skillfully uh, to this? You know, and we have, we have the, even again, before yesterday in the U.S., we had, and this is really something uh, that I think is particularly there in the U.S., but versions in other countries, we had these multiple crises of the pandemic and the crisis of racial justice, of the economy, the climate crisis, crisis of democracy. You know, that's not even mentioning some of the other, you know, ongoing crises of hunger and homelessness and the continuation of uh, patriarchy and could name multiple dimensions of, of crisis um, that, that are happening. Yeah. I listened to uh, William Barber, Reverend William Barber, someone who I uh, actually admire quite a lot. And he said that the country is both sick and well at the same time. There are tendencies that are old and somewhat sick, he said, but there also are other tendencies going on. So I wanted to point to, I think, maybe seven or eight different dimensions of practice that are really crucial in these times. I think they're crucial all the time, but they're particularly illuminating now. I'll try to speak less than I usually would to give more time for us uh, talking together and also to give time for um, several uh, songs from Eve, uh, because there's something very crucial about the power of music, really, to uh, ground us, to balance us, to uplift us. No coincidence that chanting has been so central to spiritual practice for millennia, and that songs have been so central to spiritually grounded social movements for quite a long time as well. And so um, that, that's my aim, is to touch on aspects of practice which hopefully can be relevant for all of us. Some will want to apply them more to our own individual practice, some more to our relationship to what's happening, and many to both. Many to both to the, the uh, as it were, the inner and the outer tangle. So the first dimension of practice is being skillful with what is occurring in our own experience, being skillful with our own thoughts, emotions, and body states. And we can hear that for many, although not all of us, there have been a lot of challenging states. And we, we can work really with our... Um, I think really in two ways we can um, we can use our mindfulness and our wisdom 
dimensions of our practice to see more clearly what's happening using mindfulness uh, uh, with whatever comes up, including when there are difficult thoughts, emotions, and uh, body states. You know, I was talking with a friend uh, actually from Vermont this morning, and she was saying that she was, uh, that her nervous system was a little bit out of whack, right? Like a need for grounding further in the body, right? And uh, I know for myself, uh, I was uh, cautiously optimistic going into uh, the day. And then when things were more uncertain, uh, I could feel some anxiety rising. And I, uh, I slept okay, but I did wake up for a while uh, with some anxiety. How many had somewhat similar experiences? Yeah, so many of us, not all. And so... Uh, we have, I think, really can think of our ways of holding what's challenging in two main ways. On the one hand, we want to bring mindfulness and know what's happening. Mindfulness is the starting point for skillful response. So very helpful just to name what's difficult, even though it's happening. Name uh, that I'm caught in a particular narrative, that I'm caught in a negative narrative, or I'm caught in a repetitive thought or that this emotion is continually happening. Just to name that permits us to, to act. Uh, we can remember the very central wisdom teaching that is, to me, right at the center of 2,600 years of tradition, uh, that teaching of the uh, two arrows or the two darts, which basically says when something challenging or difficult or painful happens, watch the tendency to react uh, to try to make it go away uh, by and doing something that gets us snared in reactivity. In other words, we react to what's unpleasant as if that would help. We judge ourselves, we judge someone other, someone else, we uh, assess blame here, we assess blame here, we react at the level of the body, and that can just really spin us out. You know, well before even before 2016, I found in my own one-on-one -on -one work with people, the most common guidance I would give people is something difficult or challenging is happening. Watch your tendency to shoot the second arrow. In other words, to react to what is difficult and get caught in the reactivity. So knowing that it's difficult, we can know that there will be a tendency to be reactive. We can watch that as much as possible not to feed it. That brings in both our mindfulness and our wisdom practice. And I mean, that the teaching of the two arrows is, to me, uh, something we can bring also into the social realm. It's at the core, I think, of the teachings of nonviolence, of Gandhi and King. We have had something difficult, painful happen. We will not continue the cycles of giving pain to others. But rather, we will respond fully, but out of wisdom, compassion, and love. That's that's our response when something difficult happens. Not easy. We can learn that really by working on our own being, you know, and, and especially working with things that are not the most difficult things. Work with middle level challenges. What You'll see the same tendencies happening, but we can work with them. So we bring in mindfulness. We bring in the, the wisdom teachings. We can 
notice the patterns at the level of the body. If we can do body practices, qigong, yoga, taking a walk, grounding the energy, very, very helpful. Um, then also to bring in what we call the heart practices to really to uh, hold whatever's happening with care, uh, with compassion, um, to do that for ourselves and to do that for others. And here I want to in invite Eve in a moment to bring in a song um, that really is really a song of compassion. Could be for ourselves, could be for others. Can we have the response when things are difficult to use our mindfulness, use our wisdom, but also to bring in the qualities of the heart, the qualities of compassion? So I'll let you introduce it, Eve. So this is a this is a song written by Oakland singer-songwriter Melanie Damore. It's called Sending You Light. It's a short, repeating song, similar to a chant. And so um, I encourage you, if, if you're inclined, to sing along with me. Um, the message of the song is compassion. So much like the traditional compassion phrases, uh, wishing for a lifting of stress and pain, wishing for healing and peace. You can send this into your own system, which is a skillful thing to do if you're feeling any discomfort or stress. And you can also send it out to others because you know there are many millions of people uh, under all different degrees and levels of stress and suffering right now where you can do both. But feeling into your own body first and offering offering perhaps some of this energy of compassion in toward yourself and then also considering sending it out. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you I am sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. I am sending you light to heal you, to 
sending you light to heal you, to hold you. I am sending you light to hold you in love. Thank you so much, Eve. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie Damore, as well. So we have our own individual practice, the mindfulness, the heart practices, uh, with song being a wonderful way to access the qualities of compassion as well as, well as joy. Uh, and we also, I wanted to highlight a further quality which I think is really central. It's related to compassion, uh, and that is the quality of empathy. I think it's very, very central at this time. Empathy is the capacity to tune in to the emotions and the sense of what matters of another person. And I believe that empathy needs to be practiced in a very widespread way at a time of difference and polarization. To be empathic towards someone doesn't mean one has to agree with them. It doesn't mean one gives up one's own view. It does acknowledge that it's a human being rather than simply an enemy. And so there are a whole set of practices that I think are really crucial and that people who are trained in mindfulness and compassion and empathy can bring further into the world. You know, whether it's with co-workers or extended family or people on the other side of the political divide, whether or not they are being empathic in return. It's this ability to tune in to what other people are experiencing. I think it can be a deliberate practice that where I find myself being judgmental, I can uh, say, let me try empathy. And we try it where it's maybe easier first, and we try it with people actually we don't have necessarily differences with. You know, sometimes when I train people in empathy, I think I've done it sometimes for the Wednesday uh, gathering, I would say something like, uh, um, you know, last night I went from cautious optimism to a little bit of anxiety, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and oh, I th et cetera. And then you would be tuning in empathically and tell me, oh, I heard some, I heard some unease, some, some what, some uh, anxiety, some wobbliness of mind, or whatever. And what really matters for you is, I don't know, maybe you could speculate, you know, uh, coming to uh, uh, a less divisive place for the country, or whatever. You know, I didn't speak much, so you didn't have too much chance to be empathic. But um, that would be how we would do it. How can, how can we cultivate? Uh, deliberately an ability to be with what another person is experiencing and tune in. It's an innate capacity, but it also can be a deliberate practice, something that we do deliberately. And again, a simple way to do it is to tune into the emotions and to tune into the sense of what matters, more in terms of the deep, um, the deep values, like 
Um, you know, for example, uh, uh, I once was part of a, um, an interfaith demonstration at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, where we had a five-day retreat, an inter interfaith retreat. Uh, it was really, the, you know, we were really putting in question nuclear weapons, but every, we were uh, invited to have lunch every day in the main Los Alamos laboratory and we could uh, talk with people, talk with uh, the scientists and technicians. And I think I and others often had a deliberate practice of empathy. We didn't agree necessarily with what they were doing, but we wanted to hear what's, you know, what we didn't say it like this, but what's the deep value we could hear? Oh, and people generally said, I'm doing this because uh, I really think this is the best thing for security. Security is a deep value that we could agree with and we might not agree with the strategy to get the security, but we can be empathic and say, oh, your, you know, your deeper value is security. And I think, you know, this, again, I could give a whole talk on empathy, and maybe that's good to do soon. But this empathy is so crucial. You know, there is a, an author named Jeremy Rifkin who said, actually, the cultivation of empathy so that we actually tune into the experience of people who are in different uh, communities, even different countries, is crucial for the survival of humanity. He wrote this book in 2009 called The Empathetic Civilization. And he said that the further cultivation of empathy uh, is necessary for us really to deal collectively with our, with our um, systemic issues. You know, and that's, um, others have said something very similar, that empathy is crucial for meeting the issues of our time. Uh, I did a training once with uh, a man named David Kemp, C-A-M-P-T, who is uh, a trainer who is uh, African-American, and he particularly trains uh, people, but I think particularly white people, to cultivate empathy in their extended families around the uh, agreement to act against racism. On you know, in both uh, its individual manifestations and its collective manifestations, systemic manifestations, and for him, one of the keys is having empathy to people on the other side of the political divide. Not trying to convince them of a, of your position, but saying we can be against racism wherever we are on the spectrum. Right, and empathy is the key. So you can look up his work. Very, I think, very important work. And the, the center of it is, is empathy, is actually being able to listen. Empathy doesn't mean that we agree, but we can listen respectfully with interest in what really matters for the person. And uh, very helpful there is distinguishing between what matters and the particular strategies that they use. The strategies can be ones we really think are not good strategies, but the value, for example, of security to give my earlier example, uh, or you know, values that you'll find with people on the other side of the political divide, actually they're going to have values that, that you could actually think are important values and disagree with the strategies perhaps. That's an important point. And empathy is really important for, again, going against the political polarization, having more of a sense of interdependence. Again, part of what we teach in Buddhist practice and what's taught by 
many of our great teachers. You know, many of you may remember the quotation from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham, Alabama. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught, he said, in an inescapable network of mutuality that is a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So that practice of empathy, also the practice, the related practice of compassion, understanding interdependence, a key part of our practice right now. Also related to these are taking our attitude towards our own views and opinions as parts of practice. This is a central part of practice uh, for the Buddha. It's been a central part of practice for 2,600 years. How many people would like to have looking at your own strong views as part of your practice? Let me see how quickly the hands go up. Uh, they don't go, they go went up quickly for about one third, look like, or maybe one half. So that's interesting, right? And uh, I was just talking with someone yesterday who was saying, you know, I, you know, uh, was actually a little bit confused maybe about how we work with views and was thinking that, oh, I have to give up my views. But that's not the case. So what we give up is the strong attachment to views. We still keep our views, political views or other views. We can keep on looking at them. But what we give up is the, the clinging or the attachment to views. We don't necessarily let go of views. That's a very important point. And so one way to uh, work with views is just to see what they are. See what I'm, see what a very strong view is for myself. Really get a clear sense of that. Um, appreciate that I may not have the complete truth. How many are open to the fact that you're not, com you don't have the complete truth on your view? Okay. Again, about half of us. Maybe. <laughs> I'm joking when I say that, you know. So, um, I had a very interesting experience um, some time ago. I, I uh, actually had an initial training when I was in universities in uh, philosophy, and I eventually became a teacher of philosophy at universities. That lasted for about seven years. And, um, and during that time, uh, I was part of a kind of a innovative group of people who developed a program called Revisioning Philosophy, who wanted to bring philosophy back to its roots in wisdom and public philosophy and not being esoteric and being relevant for the living of life. You know, the literal meaning of philosophy is love of wisdom. Sophia means, means wisdom. And... Um, we were gathered together and everyone was very, you know, very interesting, very innovative. And then sure enough, people seemed to very quickly get into opposed views. There too, I was a little bit shocked. People got argumentative and seemed to suggest that other people's views weren't so good. Got into that. 
One person named Robert McDermott uh, was a friend who later became uh, president of the California Institute of Integral Studies. He suggested a practice which really has stayed with me. He said, when you notice a strong difference of views, take it as a starting point for inquiry rather than war. Take it as a starting point for inquiry rather than war. Look into why do I have such a strong reaction to this person's views? What are my emotions? Is there something in my history there? Again, it's not about giving up your view, but it's about inquiry and the possibility of dialogue across views. That's what we're aiming for. It doesn't mean that the other person's open to that, but it means that we are, right? And another question was, um, is there something I might possibly learn from this person? We can ask that, right? I took that as a core practice for the next five years, and it was really, really interesting to work with. So you can do that. Uh, inquire into views. Uh, I think of a line from the uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life from Shantideva from the 8th century. I should be happy to have an enemy, her opponent, and here we can think someone with different views. I should be happy to have an enemy, for that enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Um, how's that? Right? So to take uh, uh, differences or challenges as a starting point for some, for some inquiry and develop the ability to listen. Can, can, can we listen better? Again, not giving up your views, and again, doesn't determine what the other person does, but can we listen? You know, if you look behind me, this um, woodlot print from Tibet has Milarepa, who has his hand cupped to his ear, listening to the world. Or if you look, if you can see Eve's uh, right behind her is an image of Kuan Yin, she who listens to the cries of the world, right? Can we listen? So connected with empathy, compassion, connected with uh, uh, working with views is this ability to listen, to, to listen inwardly for what's there. And this ability to listen to oneself, to another, is so central to our practice. Can we do that in a time that's difficult? Because when we listen, we, we can hear the other we can also increasingly hear the depths of ourselves and what calls us, what calls me, what's my next step, what's my next, next action. Mm -hmm. So we want to develop uh, compassion, empathy, work with our own views. These are central capacities for our times. Um, we want to keep training I think in both inner work and outer work, I believe that people who are trained in inner work, who are involved outwardly, could be in your work, in your community, in activism, that that combination of inner and outer training and inner and outer commitment is what the world most deeply needs right now. And we can ask, uh, does, that, does that vision call me? You know, that... I, Personally, I think that a lot of the old ways of doing activism, which don't bring in the inward dimension, are not sufficient for our times. They don't give people enough uh, equanimity. They don't give people enough ability 
to be with the ups and downs. They don't let people be there for the long haul. We need a lot of inner qualities to be there and be able to respond in, in inner ways. And so keep, uh, keep learning. Keep learning in these different ways. Uh, and I keep learning. Let me see. I have a quotation. This is from uh, Ken Kraft, who wrote a book on engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism entails both inner and outer work. We must change the world, we must change ourselves, and we must change ourselves in order to change the world. That, that integration, and see if that applies to you. So all sorts of inner work, the meditative work, there's inner work to be done and seeing how we've internalized some of the harmful systems related to race and gender and sexual orientation and so forth. There's that inner work, there's the outer work of learning to be skillful in our responses. You know, for me, learning the, the tools and practices related to nonviolent action is very, very crucial. I'll mention one or two other things and then maybe actually after this one, we'll hear a song. Do what you can to connect with uh, traditions and approaches which prepare you for the long haul, which prepare us for the long haul. Have that sense of being here for the long haul, so not necessarily overly knocked around by this or that event, this or that week. Can we be here for the long haul? And I was thinking of that phrase, uh, thinking of uh, Miles Horton, who founded the Highlander Center in uh, Tennessee. Some, how many of you know of the Highlander Center? One of the great places in the country uh, in the 30s and 40s, it was one of the few places where there were interracial gatherings in the South. It was where uh, Rosa Parks trained before she refused to get off, uh, to move in that bus. It was um, burned to the ground in 1960 by local people and they rebuilt it in a different place within a few months. It's one of the places that can give one a lot of uh, energy and encouragement. Read about it, study it, there, there are books on it. Really an amazing place. And there are other, there are other places like that uh, that can give one a sense of these traditions, these different traditions. Uh, Highlander is an example of this beautiful tradition which is not, uh, not very well known of uh, all sorts of movements that have uh, that are, I think, spiritually based in many ways, and are and bring in uh, uh, interracial solidarity and solidarity across classes and so forth that really bridge a lot of the divisions. It's really important to know about those. You know that you know that those kind of traditions go back to um, you know go back to the abolitionist movement go back to uh, the movements after the Civil War, the populist movement, uh, many movements in the 1920s and 30s, movements in the, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. There are these legacies of people coming together, often being spiritually based, that are, that are very wonderful. Uh, I also think of traditions like the movement in Vietnam. We learn about that, especially from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, that was, uh, that was, again, bringing together inner and outer work. Uh, um, 
The, the basis of the movement in Vietnam was bringing together wisdom and compassion, which is the traditional framework of Buddhist practice. But they said we also have to bring in courage. So their pillars were wisdom, compassion, and courage. Training in all of those. Now this is from Thich Nhat Hanh talking about uh, that Vietnam. And here I'm mentioning these so that we can be in touch with these different uh, traditions that can give us energy for the long haul. Thich Nhat Hanh, mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. And then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. It's that mixing of the inner and the outer practices. One of the other expressions of this, which I'll just be brief about, is uh, about being a bodhisattva. In the Buddhist tradition, it's a being dedicated to awakening and dedicated to helping others. And the bodhisattva trains, you know, has a training. The bodhisattva trains in patience and generosity and being ethical and patience and having big energy and meditation and wisdom and being skillful with different uh, tools and commitment and equanimity and so forth. And mm. uh, can, uh, again, the Bodhisattva learns how to keep the process going through all the ups and downs. This is from the, the Zen tradition about the Bodhisattva. Living beings are infinite. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. And so in relation, I wanted to invite Eve to have another song now that I think really can express that sense of uh, being connected with the legacy of these different traditions and approaches, you know, in uh, throughout the world. And, and I think the figure of the Bodhisattva, these can give us energy for the long haul. So there's a, another song that I'll invite Eve to uh, introduce. Great. Thanks, Donald. Um, this song is called Ella's Song, written by Dr. Ben Bernice Johnson Reagan and sung by Sweet Honey in the Rock. Ella refers to Ella Baker, who was a giant civil rights activist in the 20th century. And all of the words in the song, every single word in the song, every single sentence and phrase was spoken by Ella Baker. Um, Bernice Johnson Reagan took these words, found these words in, in Ella Baker's writings and um, put them together into a song. So um, the verses change, but the chorus remains the same. So I'd love for you to sing with me on the chorus. Or the, or the rest of it, too, if you know it. And the chorus goes like this. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Join me. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until 
believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mothers, sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mothers, sons. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. That which touches me most is that I had the chance to work with people. Passing on to others that which was passed on to me. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. To me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. If I can but shed some light as they carry us through the gale. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. The older I get, the better I know that the secret of my going on is when the reins are in the hands of the young who dare to run against the storm. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Not needing to clutch for power, not needing the light just to shine on me. I need to be one in the number as we stand against tyranny. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. I'm a woman who speaks in a voice, and I must be heard. At times I can be quite difficult, I'll bow to no man's word. Oh, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes one more time. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Eve. So, just a few more words, and then we'll open it up, and Eve will come back uh, right at the end also for a further song. Um, two other reference points, and then we'll open things up to, to share and have discussion. One other reference point uh, is the importance of community. 
and staying connected, right, to be there for the long haul, even to do the practices that I've been talking about. Uh, even to sing together, we need community. And so just to stay connected, I've been surprised and really gladdened by the amount of connection that we can have even on, on Zoom. You know, uh, actually, Eve and I just uh, finished uh, last Sunday teaching a seven-day retreat on Zoom, which was quite uh, wonderful. People could feel quite connected over seven days, and maybe many of you have experienced that, but even the Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday mornings. So stay connected with community. And then lastly, and I'll invite this as a reflection, tune in to what your next step is right now. Take a moment just to tune in. What is my next step, either an inner or outer response? It might be to do more inner practice, to settle. It might be to do that and then to see what the skillful response or action is. Could, could think about immediately or could think about the next period of time. So let's just take about a minute. What's my next step? This is just for yourself. I want to close and then close my um, presentation, as it were, and then open things up with a quotation. Oh, it's actually a short poem by uh, Dina Metzger. I think it was written about, uh, actually about 25 years ago. It's called Song. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. So with that, let me open things up to any sharing or question and you could, um, I think, better to use the raised hand function under participants. And I think Brian will help with recognizing it. If you want to ask a question or make a comment through the chat and have it read, that's also possible. I think that's better because I can only see about 25 people at a time. Anyone want to share, could be sharing what you experienced in the last uh, 24 hours or period of time, ask a question, um, ask something about what I said related to empathy or views or inner practices with challenging states.
Also, if, if the blue hand is challenging, uh, I am also looking for anyone who raises their hand on camera to... Okay, you can, yeah, and I can see 25, so you can also raise your hand, that, that can work. Silence is also nice. Okay, it looks okay. like uh, Kit. Yeah, Kit McKnight, go ahead. Um, Kit, you can unmute and speak up. Okay, now can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, I'm just saying it's it's nice to, see, to um, have you back. I missed you. Um, and it's great. I was looking forward to this morning. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, I just, I had this sense of dread last night and, and again this morning, um, as I think I've talked about here, I have family and old friends who are, you know, very conservative. They're evangelical Christians. They think Trump was chosen by God. And I, I saw some disturbing propaganda with images of him and the cross and the lion and Jesus standing behind him and, you know, him, he's praying. And I'm just like, I just felt this sense of dread because it kind of reminds me of the way, you know, well, the national socialisms deified Adolf Hitler and how that kind of started. I mean, I'm a student of history and I, I have an undergraduate degree in it, so I can't help but see these patterns. Um, I don't react to them like I did. Thank God for this practice, but I kind of, I, I wonder to myself, am I, am I the only one who's seeing this aspect of it or am I, am I in the minority of people seeing this aspect of it because everyone else around me seems to be so optimistic and so um, hopeful. And, and, you know, I just, I'm continuing to just not feel that way. I guess I'm done. That's all. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Thank you, Kit, for, for sharing that. So I, I think then again, um, I think it's helpful, you know, to keep on with the inner practices to, um, avoid getting overly locked into a certain maybe position. Um, there, there have been, there have been a lot of people who have written books and done analyses that show some of the parallels between the twenties uh, and thirties in Germany. Uh, I think of Timothy Snyder's work, for example, uh, who, who wrote a whole book on this. I think he wrote, he wrote it in like a week or two at the end of 2016, I believe, <laughs> you know, uh, but that there, there are quite a number of people who've done uh, different kinds of analyses of that. And I think there are parallels there are also significant differences, uh, you know, in terms of the strength of the democratic traditions in the countries, but there are parallels. Uh, and so I think that that is important, but uh, it's also, uh, we can still do that, you know, the inner work, and watch that the view gets too tight or 
to uh, gets connected with anxiety too much, maybe. Um, you know, and then uh, and then how to talk about that with people on another side. I, I probably wouldn't first bring up. Well, you know, there are a lot of parallels with the Nazis. Might not <laughs> might be a conversation stopper, uh, if if not worse, right? So, so I think uh, again, um, if it's possible to be empathic and listen beneath the surface for what's important for them, it's a hard place to be because they might not necessarily be empathic towards you. Okay. You're still muted. Sorry. I said no. I would never bring this up to them. And yeah. and yes, I'm not getting a lot of empathy back, and that doesn't stop me. Yeah, and yeah. there are there are quite a few pe a lot of people who are who are aware of those parallels. Okay. okay. A, a number of them in print. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I have a couple uh, questions in the chat. Okay. Uh, or maybe some uh, sharing. Uh, so one is, I think that all that is happening to awaken combat racism and sexism is creating the fundamentalist pushback. People want to hold on to racism because of their own fear. Um, and someone else, uh, these are kind of both related to the same uh, commentary. Many people see the parallels and have the same feeling. Many people are also not students of history. Yeah, yeah. There's some there's some important points there. Um, I I actually uh, directed a program for nine years called Socially Engaged Spirituality, and we looked at. Um, it was, at, it was a graduate program, which went on from, I think most of them were 18 months long. One was 24 months long. And we studied, actually, uh, traditions connected religion or spirituality with uh, social action um, in many, many cultures, you know, from indigenous traditions to, to the um, nonviolent movements in India to... Uh, going back to the Jewish prophets, to uh, Dorothy Day, and so forth, across multiple traditions. And um, we also did study, uh, we, had a, we had a whole session on fundamentalism. And I think uh, two comments occurred to me. One is that we did find that there was a very, very strong link between fundamentalism and um, wanting to preserve uh, so-called traditional gender roles is very, very, very strong. We did not find the same connection with uh, racism, per se, but we found it with uh, wanting to preserve traditional gender roles. And I would say, you know, my own analysis is that the number of people who are fearful in that way is a relatively small percentage of the population. You know, I don't, I, I don't know if I can quantify it, but... I think they're, I'm, I'm very influenced, as I've mentioned here, by the work of Ian Haney Lopez, which is particularly on race and class. And he's done a great deal of research, and he shows that if you have a very skillful combination of addressing, uh, of linking economic justice with racial justice, you can, you can gain the uh, majority of the country. And uh, I think that research is very good. And so that would suggest the linkage that 
a lot of the um, a lot of the issues have to do with people feeling like they're almost like abandoned and they have lost hope economically. So that is a very crucial area. But that linkage of economic and racial justice um, is actually a very hopeful sign. And in times where people have brought those together, they've often won elections. So that's a hopeful sign. Look up Ian Haney Lopez. And he has, a, I think, one of the project is called the Race Class Project, if I remember right. They, they, so but thank you for the comments. Uh, anyone else? Uh, question, a comment, particularly on connecting our practice with how we, how we address all of this or what's up for you right now. Or it could be just sharing how what's come up for you has been challenging at times and how you've been able to work with it with your practice. That would be that would be wonderful to hear also. So some stories of how the last period of time have been for you and how practice has been helpful. Anyone want to share something like that? I got just one in the a couple in the chat and then I also see someone's hand up on the camera. Great. Um so my work in child welfare has encouraged me to always try and incite compassion to others. Yeah. Someone, someone else said gratitude for friends. And yeah. uh, someone else said, and this was the raised hand person, uh, towards systems, individuals, and workers, my mindfulness practice has seriously helped. Great. And does the person who had the raised hand function or want to um, speak speak in more detail about that for the whole group. You're, you're welcome to do so if you wish. Yeah, please, uh, uh, Melanie, please. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous to share, but I, I just want to say this because hopefully it's helpful for other people. Um, I, uh, I really care about being engaged and I've been involved in activism in the past, but I find that with, um, a lot of the things happening in my personal life due to the client, you know, the pandemic and, um, just emotional stuff. I mean, everything's so difficult right now and I've been meditating and I've been doing the inner work, um, but, you know, it's, it's so hard for me right now to just even stabilize myself to, yeah. you know, to find that engagement. Um, I just find that what I'm working on over and over again is just grounding and just to have enough energy to be open to the people around me. Um, and I would lie, I just feel like very brokenhearted about the situation. And I know that's a good place to start. <laughs> Um, but I would love to be able to do more, you know, and it's just hard to know what to do coming from this place that feels so kind of raw. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much what I want to say. Yeah. Gosh, thank you so much, Melanie. Yeah. Very, very, very clear. How many can relate to what Melanie said? Yeah. So look around, Melanie. It's, I think you're expressing something for many of us. 
And just one or two things occur to me. Um, one is that I've certainly seen in, in working with um, uh, connecting inner and outer work and with engagement over the years, that it's really important to respect the cycles, that there's sometimes cycles where we do more inner work or focus mostly on our own situation. And then there are other times when we go more outwardly. And there also could be, we also could be primarily just stabilizing the personal situation, but have some very selective ways that we might act. You know, so we don't try to do too much, but we're, maybe we're selective. Maybe we join, uh, I don't know, a demonstration here and there, but most of the energy is really sta about stabilizing one's own situation. So that's why I think it's really crucial just to listen deeply to oneself and know what is really true to one's own sense of next steps and not to force one's action according to some idea. That's really, really crucial. Yeah. Maybe time for one more, if we have one. Please. Yeah. Like, uh, um, oh, someone speaking? I, I was speaking. Uh, I could see Krista's hand. Who did, did you see another? I'll just read. There was a couple more in chat, and then uh, and then Kirsty can speak. Uh, uh, practice in metabolizing anger day after day the whole year. And uh, I feel a bit crazy. I'm still optimistic about the election's outcome, but I'm also on the verge of tears. Okay, well, thank you for saying that. Again, the uh, community, friends, inner practices, the heart practices, holding oneself with compassion and um, you know, letting the anger move through. Uh, yeah, um, Letting it move then, through and seeing how it changes. Yeah, go ahead. I could say more on that, but maybe for the sake of time, I'll invite uh, the other you, know, you to speak a little bit more, Brian. Then we'll go to Kirsty. Oh, um, yeah, that's uh, that's it, uh, Kirsty. You can go ahead and speak. Uh, cool. Thank you so much. I just want to say, um, yeah, thank you very much, Donald. I'm from New Zealand, and um, over this sort of time, I've been. Um, listening to a lot of Dharma talks, especially from Dharma Seed, and resonate a lot with um, your your thoughts. And, like, I moved um, from New Zealand from Melbourne earlier in the year due to COVID, and I think what you touched on earlier about community is so important. And I think being displaced, you know, you guys over there, you know, when you don't have physical contact with the community, but the reach of being, you know, through Zoom and then the global community, I think right. being in like a deep sort of inquiry and on the sort of Buddha path, um, you know, it's been really nice to, to be able to connect globally with people and with teachers like you um, that have sort of given a lot of, um, I don't know, just sort of solace and a lot of um, strength to know that this is the path that we're on and that like we're all in this together. Um so, yeah, I just want to say my huge gratitude for and my kitten that's going crazy. <laughs> so I'm sorry for the distraction. But, yeah, thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you, Kirsty, so much. It's, um, it's, there's, there, there have been benefits from this use of Zoom through the pandemic. Uh, and I think uh, after, you know, assuming that we go back to some degree of normality, whenever that happens, I think we will keep uh, this ability to connect uh, uh, across time zones and globally, because it's remarkable to have uh, people together across 
different cultures and uh, different countries and so forth. It's been wonderful. And also just to say that um, many of us uh, here in the U.S. really appreciate uh, your leader in New Zealand <laughs> and would appreciate, uh, I wouldn't say trading, but that, that wouldn't be right, but would appreciate if she had uh, could manifest in two bodies, which is an ancient yogic ability, uh, many of us would would be willing to, to have her lead us. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. A very, very inspiring uh, leader uh, in so many ways. So, so I think we're, um, Jobeth, I can see your hand, but I think because unless it's, can you be really brief? Because I want to move to closing. Why don't we have you be, if you can be on the brief side. We'll be on the brief side. Um, all this angst that's come up in the, in, in the last few weeks has, uh, I have benefited so much by doing the, the Brahma Bihara practices. Yeah. Um, yesterday I kept saying to my, it's for me and, and for the, the other communities and, and uh, just over and over again, may I be at peace and at ease. And uh, I, oh, it just really helps ground me and, and open keeps my heart open instead of closing up in, in anger. So that's all. Yeah. I appreciate Anna Douglas's talk about that. She's been, been my teacher in Tucson. So. Oh, yeah. And to say hi to Anna. And, uh, uh, yeah, the Brahma Vihara, the heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, so central for our times. Wonderful practice that helps one... Uh, make this bridge, this connection between the inner work and the outer response. They all have aspects that contribute to both and they, they work so beautifully together. And so thank you for reminding us of that, Jobeth. And I want to close in our traditional way with the uh, dedication of merit. And just to say that uh, I'll be back next week and I'm, I'm going to see if, uh, if Eve has time next week as well. Um, but uh, I want to invite Eve to do a version of the dedication of merit and let her introduce it. This is a traditional way that we close sessions. This is the uh, Pure Land Buddhist version of the dedication of merit, translated from Mandarin into English by Reverend Hung Shur. And the music, the melody, was written by uh, Canadian singer-songwriter Lorena McKenna. May every living being our minds is one and radiant with light. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity, may our minds awake. To great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. 
May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave our grief and pain. May this boundless light meet the darkness of our sacred nights. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eve, and thanks everyone for uh, being together at this time, and hope to see many of you next week, so we can, uh, I like to say, you can uh, unmute and we can say goodbye together, if you'd like to unmute. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful music. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. I love. Yeah. Thank you. 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.